Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we assemble to explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one minute at a time. In this, our sixth season, we are looking at the Avengers. I'm Andy Nelson from the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. And I'm Pete Wright, and I probably don't need to say this, but we're definitely not okay. (laughs) Today we are talking about Minute 74, which begins with a shaken Nick calling for Hill, and ends with Tony telling Steve he'll meet him at Engine 3. Joining us on the show today, we have Curtis Finley from the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello, Curtis. Hello. It's it's great to be back on this podcast. I had a fantastic time last time talking about Thor, even though we were talking about the Captain America movie. And now I'm happy to be back here again talking about Avengers. All of them. All of the Avengers. All of them. So many. Yeah, you've picked a minute that uh, covers the gamut. We've got, oh, so uh, we've many got plenty of people to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good place to start, uh, jumping in right in the middle of a lot of action with this uh, with this film. So we've just had uh, Clint and his team attack the helicarrier, and uh, the, our team has been separated. So we've got Natasha and Bruce. They have fallen through the window and landed in the lower equipment room. We've got uh, Fury, and we're starting this minute with him as he kind of lifts his head after after the attack and and calls for Hill to kind of get a sense as to what's going on. And then really, everybody jumps into action mode here. So this is a great uh, exercise in how to tell a story with so many characters. And really, like you said, they split up the team. So each, you know, pair basically has its own mission and own objective, but they're constantly talking to each other through their in-ear communication or whatever it is. And that way, it's still one thing that's going on, but there are many things going on, and it's just fantastic. And you can see this play out in this one minute. It's so well done. It's, I mean, it is a fantastic example of doing a complex thing in a film like this where you do have a lot of characters. And this is that point where let's start separating them while following them all. I mean, we've separated them before, but we followed it. We're going to follow these two here or those three here or whatever the case may be. This is like, okay, we're separating them, but we're really going to be trying to follow as many of them as possible. And, um, you know, I think over the course of this minute, we're following Fury as he's trying to figure out what's going on and Hill trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, We've got Fury giving Coulson orders. We've got him uh, having Stark check in on the engine and we see him and and Steve running to the engine. We see uh, uh, Banner and and, uh, Romanoff down in that lower equipment room the only person oh and and we see clint arriving with his team of operatives uh to to start infiltrating the helicarrier the only person we don't really see of the whole team at least in this minute is thor who we don't have who we obviously had had plenty of time to talk about before but it's i mean we are really getting this sense of a group of people all having to work together to kind of sort this whole thing out and i think it it plays effectively as far as kind of giving them their own all their own little missions and uh, cross-cutting between them all. I think so, too. And I think it's actually really, uh, it's really great because we get, you know, Hill and Fury doing the administrative stuff and putting the heroes to work, right? I think that's the, well, not really to work when it comes to uh, Hulk and, and, um, (laughs) you know, 
uh, Black Widow, but yeah. but uh, you know we do get this sense, particularly on the on the project management and engineering side, that we're gonna be moving toward Tony and and Steve doing some actual repairs, and I think that's really cool. I'd like. Can we start with Maria? How does Maria hit you as the the on deck project manager here? Oh, I love Maria Hill. I think she's a great character. Uh, in the in the comics, she plays a similar role, although she is a little bit more of a spy rather than assistant. Uh, she first appeared in New Avengers number four in 2005. And so I think when they were coming up with, uh, you know, who do we want to fill out this S.H.I.E.L.D. cast for our Avengers movies? She was pretty prominent at the time. And, uh, and I think it works. I think for her to be the 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 coordinator of all of this and she she does a great job uh colby smolders is an excellent actress for this role and and she and fury uh, make a great team together and we see that over and over again as they as their journey continues through all of the phases when they pop up sporadically but curtis i mean didn't you just give the devil's advocate position to that in the comics she's more of a spy do you like i i sort of can't help but watch these movies and not feel like the character itself is given a little bit short shrift. But we don't need that. In in the comics, she's a spy because there's a lot more focus on the spies of S.H.I.E.L.D. But in these movies, the focus is the superheroes. The focus is the Avengers. So we don't need that role to be played. Plus, we have Natasha. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot about um, Hill um, because certainly with the, I don't know if you've watched all the extended and deleted scenes from this particular film, Curtis, but it's interesting that they really were exploring kind of more of that, uh, the antagonistic relationship between her and Fury, and she's doubting his decisions to bring the Avengers in and really is unhappy about the whole thing. And the film starts with her being uh, uh, interrogated by the World Security Council and really kind of laying into Fury before, over the course of the film, when we cut back to it, kind of coming to understand why he went this route and ending up agreeing with him. It was definitely an interesting route to take with her character. I mean, I suppose you can see why they may have cut it if the audiences just weren't as familiar with this character and they really wanted to focus on the Avengers. Um, but um, it's it's certainly from people who were familiar with her in the comic books. I think it does give her a little bit more of that of that element. I don't know. Have, had you seen any of those scenes before? I, I may have at one point, maybe like when did, when did this movie come out 15 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting, right, to hear her towing the company line and to make Fury the rebel, right, that they are not a unified front. And what's fascinating about it is what we get in this movie is the same material from Hill that we would have gotten with just the addition of a few scenes that radically change the perspective on their relationship. And I think that's fascinating. Absolutely think that's fascinating. What I do find interesting in their relationship is, regardless of of if they had kept those scenes in or not, this is a scene where they would be providing a unified front. So there doesn't need to really be any different reads on their relationship here. I mean, the helicarrier is under attack. They're both going to be going to work to save the helicarrier and stop the people who are infiltrating it. And so to that end, I think their work together here works really well. And I, I like the way that she's kind of, you know, the second officer, he's not on the bridge. So she's there taking care of things and, and in charge of making sure that that things are happening. And ultimately, she's, well, at least in the comics, you, we know that she's a trained Marine. And th- she's so she's 
executing orders and she knows her place in the chain of command. So even if they had those scenes in the movie where she is kind of defying uh, what, what Fury is trying to do, she also knows when it's appropriate to do that. And also Nick Fury's given us a command. We need to do that. Sure. Yeah. What's your uh, take on the helicarrier? Do you like the depiction of the helicarrier in the film and um, as opposed to how it had been depicted over the years in the comics? Oh, yeah. This helicarrier is is absolutely cool. It's, it's very iconic in its look with the huge, those four huge propellers that are just keeping it afloat. And uh, yeah, it, the helicarrier has gone through many changes over the years. Uh, it is interesting to note that the uh, helicarrier... Uh, first appeared in the very first issue of Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which was actually Strange Tales 135 in 1964. It's It's been a mainstay in S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, history since the very beginning. Okay, so that would, uh, so, because we were, um, I, I must have had some information wrong, because I thought it had appeared in a different comic first, um, and it was in 1965, so now it makes sense that there is a 64 on here, um, because we were like, well, the Avengers was 63, and I thought the Helicarrier was 65, but I must have just been looking at some incorrect date, because then now it all makes sense if there's the 64 on here. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Do you, do the two of you like that so much of this first story of the Avengers is taking place on the Helicarrier? Like, do you like it as a location, like a prominent action set piece location as opposed to just a place like that's their base and they're going to go fight on earth and things like that yes because of stakes right this is just just the location alone increases stakes that and they've been doing i think an able job teasing out what those stakes are uh by virtue of the fact that everybody's afraid of what happens when bruce becomes another thing and and to me that is that that makes the exchange between natasha and bruce as they fall through the floor indicate a sense of perilousness to everything that happens here uh, now there's this other narrative angle uh which is Look what can happen. Like, we know now that uh, malevolent interests can get inside this mobile fortress of S.H.I.E.L.D. It is, there is nothing that is sacred. There is nothing that's safe by having this fight take place on the helicarrier. And so for those two reasons alone, I think that's a really, um, I, I think that makes this a really exciting major set piece in the movie. I think also it's important to bring that diversity in the set because we're going to get a boots on the ground big battle uh, in the next portion of the movie. And so, yeah, let's give it something different. Let's have them all deal with something in the sky. <laughs> For sure. So, okay, um, I, I want to, I have a question about it, but before we move on, I do just want to clarify something um, that we had talked about on the show. We had uh, earlier with our Galaga guy, we had attributed uh, the performance of Galaga guy to Warren Cole, who's credited as a carrier bridge tech. But in fact, this is the moment where we actually see Warren Cole. He is the uh, the tech who Hill comes up and talks to in this particular minute. So that is Warren Cole, which means now I don't know who the Galaga guy is, <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, <laughs> which no. is which is disappointing. I know, I know. But at least now I can properly say, no, Warren Cole is this person who's sitting here that Maria comes up and talks with. 
Warren Cole has just been, uh, he's had like guest appearances and shows. I used to be big into 24 and he had a, a small part in one of the seasons there, um, that I actually don't even remember because <laughs> it was that small. Uh, I just saw it on IMDb, but <laughs> he's now got a starring role in a new show called Leather, uh, uh sorry, Yellow Jackets with Christina Ricci. Yep. So he's doing pretty good for himself despite only one line in this movie. <laughs> Yeah, he doesn't get a lot to say, but he looks good saying it. And I guess that's what's important. Is <laughs> that's that he's right. Delivering, he's delivering well here. So, absolutely. All right. So, uh, okay. So, back to the helicarrier. As we're kind of seeing uh, the damage and everything and, and pieces falling off of it, etc., um, it's, it's apparent that there is no cloaking at this point anymore. We're going to certainly be noticing that over the course of the next, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, however long, as we kind of continue this battle on the helicarrier, where it's we're just not seeing it. Is it? Do you think that the damage uh, to the engine like just disrupted it and it went off? Or do you think that they turn it off when something happens? Any thoughts on on the way that the cloaking works in situations like this? Because <laughs> I have a theory. I just, I just want to see if either of you have any thoughts. I, I always just sort of imagined it was a, um, it, it was the ship's under attack. Something got, something got, got shook loose and, uh, all the cloaking just broke. That's, that's kind of my take. Yeah. I'm, there, you could also say that maybe they needed to bring it down because there were allies coming to their aid and they needed to see where they were going. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, that kind of falls in line with what I was thinking about it. I mean, I suppose to a certain extent, you don't want your cloaking to just instantly turn off if there's an attack because it makes it that much easier for people who are attacking you to figure out where you are. But at the same time, if you have people out on the outside who are coming to your aid or who are trying to do repairs, they're not going to be able to see what they're doing. Like if Iron Man flew outside and the thing was closed still, I, I imagine <laughs> that the work would be a little more tricky if he were trying to navigate to the appropriate spots and it just wasn't, uh, he wasn't able to actually see where he was going. Yeah. It just feels so much like an incomplete circuit. Like as soon as that engine breaks, so many of the panels are disrupted. Like, of course, it's not going to cloak properly. Yeah, although, I mean, the engine is, you know, pretty far from, you know, the bulk of the ship. So you would think it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be just the damage that was triggering it. You know what I mean? Yeah, right, right. So yeah, it's just, it is one of those things. And I do, like, I do wonder if that is an element of this film that I think that they could have handled a little better as far as like showing the cloaking the non-cloaking and stuff like that because we see them turning it on when we first get the helicarrier reveal we see a few times like earlier we saw when clint was flying up to it we see it kind of appear but i just feel like for something that is introduced as kind of a key element of it if we're just not if it's something that they just don't give us enough of like uh, as far as a focal point of things that they have to deal with does it bother either of you that the cloaking is kind of like it's there, but they don't really do much with it in the film. It's it's interesting because I have always felt that Shield isn't in the movies isn't as much of a spy organization as I want them to be, and so it's little things like this where it's like, oh yeah, let's just remind people that we have spy technology. Uh, just a, a little bit of a hint. We'll turn on the cloaking device and. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I wish they'd do it more or focus more on it. But, you know, that's not actually the focus of the movie. They do a lot more of that in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV series. For sure. Is is there much of it in 
any other film. M- much of the spy stuff or much of the cloaking uh, 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 device? No, of, of, of the cloaking. Like, is that, I'm trying to remember now, like, do we ever see anything cloaked again? Don't we see cloaking in Winter Soldier? They have all the new... Oh, yeah, 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 totally. Helicarriers. Yeah, all of all of these, there's like three or four of them or whatever, right? And yeah. they're all cloaked at one point for sure. Yeah, because there is a big reveal. Right, but as they're doing their like mind tracing thing yeah, above major cities, yeah. I don't know. Some of the coolest cloaking is uh, the reveal of the Wakandan city in Black Panther. Oh, yes. Right. Which I assume is a different type of cloaking technology, the way that they have it almost like this Invisa shield. Yeah, because the Wakandans are just better at all that. They're better at everything. Right. <laughs> yeah, Everyone. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just a note this is, uh, Curtis, something we've been talking about and laughing about as far as like, where are they exactly? Um, I mean, at this point, it makes sense that we're at least somewhere near New Jersey since Hulk is going to land there and presumably Thor. Um, but based on our latitude and longitude conversations earlier, either all of those are incorrect or they got here from Bermuda very quickly or from the wilds of uh, north northwest of Ottawa. Or those were like the actual <laughs> latitudes and longitudes. So who knows? But uh, apparently they are now over New Jersey. At this point, so okay, <laughs> put the sun on the left. That's what yeah. we've learned. Yeah, not quite, <laughs> not quite, but soon mm-hmm. we will learn that soon enough. Yes. Um, all right. So, uh, Curtis, I want to get a sense from you. We've been talking a lot about kind of what Loki and Clint are up to as far as with this attack. And I mean, I guess now, really, that Clint is here, like, what is really the goal for their attack? Like, how are we all meant to read what their whole intent is? Because they could have been, you know, doing everything that they're doing without any of this, right? So why this attack on the helicarrier? Oh, man, that's a good question, um, other than just a spectacle <laughs> for the audience. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, one of the things is Loki, being the tactician he is, probably knows that S.H.I.E.L.D. is the one thing that's going to be the the big stumbling block in his major plan here. And uh, so let's... Let's uh, let's get in there and rattle them a little bit. Um, I wonder if he had the death of Coulson in mind when he enters the helicarrier. Oh, that's an interesting. That's interesting. Never thought about that. Maybe that was part of the plan all along. That'll be something that we can talk about more in minute 89. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When, when you're For back. Sure. Absolutely. Yep. It's. I mean, it is interesting to think about this whole game that they're playing because they didn't, I mean, they could going to Stuttgart, obviously they needed to do, but again, Loki didn't need to be there. Clint probably could have figured all of that out, including getting the eye uh, scan and everything without Loki showing up and doing his whole bit. But I, I don't know. I feel like there is this element of trying to, like knowing this team was coming together and then trying to figure out what can we do to try breaking this team apart. And that seems to really be kind of what they're trying to do here. Uh, you know, the way that, and, and I mean, we're talking about a couple minutes this week with you. And then, as you said, we'll be talking about 88 and 89 with you kind of at the end of all of this. And so it is interesting to kind of look at what are they accomplishing? And I guess by the time we get to those minutes, I mean, largely our team is kind of broken up. And so I guess 
as an opportunity to say, we can get that stuff from Stuttgart, we can get everything to New York so that we're ready. But it, as an additional thing, let's try to break the team up a little bit. And I guess that's kind of how I end up reading it. I mean, Pete, what are your thoughts on it? All of that is true. And I just want to add something we've been kind of talking about with regard to Loki writ large, that it, part of his demonstration is motivated by straight up hubris. And I think what we're talking about, you know, with with regard to him, um, you know, why does he why does he feel the need to make such a big display of in all of the ways that he makes his big displays? It's because he just wants to demonstrate that he can and uh, not necessarily because he has to or he should. Right. He's just look at what I can do, puny human, even on this masterpiece of industrial, uh, you know, success, such as the helicarrier. I can come in here. You can put me in the prison, but I can zap right out of it. Like, I can do all the things that I need to do to make this happen, and I'm just going to make a show of it because you need to be continuously put in your place. He is an interesting character, and I think that's something that he gives uh, the storytellers an opportunity to play with in these sorts of scenes, right? Of of using his interest in, I don't necessarily want to call it showboating, but there's definitely this sense of just demonstrating his joy for creating havoc and and the yeah. mischief level of him being the god of mischief. Like, there's that kind of sense that we get from him. And I think that's why he also uses Clint specifically uh to to add that chaos into the mix because he's in he's one of the he could have used any shield agent who had access codes to get inside but he specifically called out Clint and uh and used him to to get in there and be the guy that just kind of confuses a lot of stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting uh thing. I mean, what do you think of the fact that Hawkeye is used in this way in this film? Uh well, I think that it needed to happen because it's uh, we don't know anything about Hawkeye at this point. We, we only really know him from his appearance in Thor. Right. And this is kind of the first time we're getting to know him. So I think having him mind-controlled is a pretty bold move right at the beginning here, but it shows us his abilities, and it shows us um, what how formidable he can be against Avengers. Uh, so... I, I like it. I think it's a great idea. Uh, it also is a little bit of a throwback to Hawkeye's first appearance, because when he debuted in the pages of Iron Man, or in Tales of Suspense, he was a bad guy. So it's kind of like a little callback to his origin story before he became an Avenger. He was a bad guy. Kind of starts to make sense with what they do with him here. I think that's a that is a useful point in reframing because so much of of my feeling about how they use Hawkeye is my feeling about how they use Jeremy Renner, and it's just frustrating because I like him so much that I I want to see him used in a way that is authentic to the hero gestalt of the Avengers, and not having him doing more feels like misusing misusing a, a key player and. Um, it's always a little sad, but makes more sense for the character. Yeah, yeah. And we see his character fall into these these different states time and time again, especially, you know, when he's the Ronin character in after uh, yeah. Infinity War. Like, he doesn't need to be mind-controlled by Loki to slip into that other side, the darker side of his character. For sure. That's a, I mean, that's definitely an interesting point. And you can see, I mean, 
certainly there are other factors that kind of push him to take on that persona by the time we get to end game. But for sure, with with this darker element that we see with him here, albeit under mind control, still it it does show you that there may be some of this side of him in here, and it, it makes it easier to see that transition take place. Yep. We do see, uh, as I said, he and his crew arrive in their Quinjet that they had obviously taken from somewhere. Um, and just, I, we're going to keep track of this over the course of this fight, Pete. Um, we've got him plus seven. They get off of the, the Quinjet to run inside. Now, okay. earlier when they arrive at the Quinjet, we see him in the back with six other people plus the two pilots. So I'm guessing it's him and the six and one of the pilots have run inside. But all told, all we saw in the Quinjet, now there could have been others, but all told, we saw a total of nine people in there. So just keeping that in mind, we'll see, we'll see how it plays out <laughs> over the course of the We're talking about fight. nine people against the forces of the helicarrier. Not just nine people, but I, I just want to make sure as they start falling, <laughs> that they're all accounted for. <laughs> okay. This is like peak Andy is what we're seeing, is what you're saying right now. This is like you live for this kind of accounting of, of uh, a character economy. It's, it's just always interesting to see, uh, you know, where are the cheats happening? <laughs> where are the cheats? Yeah. How many people leave? How many people died? How many people came? We're going to back into exactly. the equation. Exactly. All right. Yeah. I love all of those guys in the background, and they're they're like in the full body armor with masks, and they even have like the, the breathing oxygen masks or whatever. And, you know, Clint Barton has none of that. He doesn't need any of that gear to storm the base. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not just to storm a base, but let's just remember, we are on a helicarrier. Who knows how high, but presumably <laughs> at a point where it's hard to breathe, it's hard to stand on something that's flying at whatever speed they're flying. But he's that tough. Where he, it doesn't matter. Is, he is totally fine. Yep. That awesome. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he is that awesome, for sure. Anyway, so they invade. And so now we have this point where the story is really kind of getting going because we've got the engine is falling apart and we have tony and steve on their way to go get him or to, to see what they can do to fix it um we've got uh colson is being sent down to kind of check the detention levels and then go to the arsenal and uh hill's trying to take care of the the bridge and we've got uh natasha and bruce as they're starting as uh, bruce we're setting up some danger here she's her ankle is pinned we see that bruce we're getting this sense that Oh, something is a little off with him at this particular point. Um, I can't remember. I mean, we didn't really have an opportunity to talk much about um, Bruce Banner, Mark Ruffalo with you before. But what do you think of the change in this franchise of putting Mark Ruffalo in in uh, the green skin? It was definitely a, a jarring change at the time. I, I because he plays the character so differently, and it. But I mean, it's hard to imagine him not being in there now we've definitely grown to love this this warm and cuddly version of bruce banner uh <laughs> at the time i had no big qualms with it i like mark ruffalo as an actor i always have and so at the time i was happy to see him in the role uh and he does a good job do you the way that we're getting this well i maybe we should save our, our talk about natasha and bruce for tomorrow because we're going to have a lot of of their 
yeah. a, a lot of them to discuss in tomorrow's minute. We're just kind of setting up this danger at this particular point as she's looking and seeing, like, uh, we're okay, right? Like, I, I kind of love the way that um, she's got that little line uh, to him as he's starting to break down. But, um, yeah, so, um, you know, toward the end of this minute, we've got Tony and Steve running off to uh, to get uh, to Engine 3. There is a shot of kind of, you know, we're following behind the two of them as they're running through one of the hallways and trying to get to the engine room. I don't know. Does, does that shot of the two of them, is it, how does it look to you? I always find as I look at that shot, it just seems a little cheap. It seems kind of like a TV set as opposed to something a little more cinematic any does that strike either of you you're talking about you're talking about steve and tony yeah it's a shot of steve and tony we're seeing them from behind as they're running down a hallway right around second 52 yeah it's it's definitely toward the end of this minute there's just something about it that just always strikes me it 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 definitely feels like i feel (laughs) the writer director's tv history like plastic crates on the side and they just look like pet carriers makes it feel like we're we're (laughs) we're, it doesn't feel like the helicarrier anymore i don't know that i'd ever i've ever really stopped to think about it but there is a there is a shot that does and i think maybe this pivots off of what you're feeling it's when they split at the end of these seconds where we have where we switch our pov is now on tony and we see the plastic crates behind him and then it turns and he is now looking forward at the closet you know wink the closet and that feels like those two locations aren't in the same space not only that and that's a great point um it's such a strange shift in camera styles because we're going from kind yeah. of like this wobbly it's not quite handheld it's steady cam but there's a little more movement going on yeah, in it as we're behind them and then to that other shot of the two of them and then we cut to behind uh tony and it just suddenly everything feels so calm and smooth and it's like why did we go from this chaotic hallway to now we're just in this completely quiet serene and it's very spacious the ceiling has now higher there's no more sparks coming down from you know exposed electrical panels etc it's just very quiet and there are no other people like this is the hero shot for what's in his closet and we, we i get it but it does make for a bit of a jarring kind of transition all of those shots are pretty quick and i think it's only something you really notice if you were to like maybe go through the movie a minute at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, that is accurate. That is accurate. Yeah, I feel like we've said that a lot. (laughs) That's welcome to the the battle cry of this show. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, Well, that's pretty much like bringing us to the end of the minute. Any last thoughts about anything going on here? No, I think that wraps it up for me. We've covered it pretty intensely here. Pretty effectively. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, it has been a great conversation uh, with you, Curtis. Thank you for joining us for today's minute. Of course. Uh, Tell everybody about your show and uh, where they can find it. Well, I have a podcast called the Epic Marvel Podcast, where we talk about classic Marvel comics and uh, especially the epic collections that Marvel loves to publish these days. And uh, we have a Facebook group as well if you search for Epic Collections on Facebook. Otherwise, I'm all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. You just have to either search my name or search for Epic Marvel Podcast and you'll find me. Uh, Yeah, check that stuff out. Great podcast. uh, Lots of great stuff. So, We'll be back with you tomorrow to talk more about all of this in Minute 75. So we're certainly looking forward to that. Yep. And uh, that's it from us today. So, Pete, thanks as always. 
tomorrow, Andy, the sad tale of Hulky McSad Eyes. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Message to the World by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show.